this is Mark Sebring with the Emerald City Andragons at the Gallifrey Convention. This is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome. It was a beautiful day in Doctor Who podcast land. The DWP camper van sat nestled in its woody glade, surrounded by the tall oak trees that encircled the luxurious recording studio. The sun shone down, providing warmth and sustenance to the bountiful vegetable patch that dominated a large part of the plot. Garden rakes and shovels lay casually discarded beside vegetable beds brimming with potatoes, carrots, pumpkin and other crops. Inside the camper van, voices could be heard. The busy preparations for another podcast recording session were underway. Now, if I can get this laptop working properly, uh, we should be okay from this end. Leeson informed everybody. Leeson was in charge of making sure the technical side of things was working perfectly. The laptop used to record our audio had been a bit temperamental lately. Tom was busy setting up the microphone stands and cables and pressed the last jack into position. Tom liked to work hands-on. There! Tom exclaimed wildly. <laughs> That's the last cable in. We are ready to record. Uh, not quite yet. Leeson cautioned. Uh, aren't you forgetting something? No, I don't think so. The look of puzzlement spread across Tom's youthful face. Trevor turned around dramatically with a big grin on his face. Where are we going to sit? On the floor? Tom slapped his forehead as the realisation hit home. <laughs> of course. I'll fix it right now. As Tom moved the chairs into position, Trevor and Leeson stepped gingerly over the spaghetti-like pile of cables and edged their way around the microphone stands to their customary vinyl stalls, ready to record. Trevor didn't immediately take his seat, but instead stood in front of Tom and Leeson, waiting for them to get comfortable. Now, I don't wish to seem unprepared, but exactly what are we doing in today's show? Leeson looked down into his cornflakes bowl, almost embarrassed. He hated not being ready to record. Well... Trevor paused for dramatic effect to ensure all eyes were upon him. Today we are reviewing four original novels from the Ninth Doctor, Christopher Eccleston and his TARDIS crew. Four titles that cover the gamut of styles and storylines. Books that take the Ninth Doctor in some familiar directions and books that take him in some new ones. Trevor was starting to enjoy his moment in the spotlight, relishing every syllable. Leeson and Tom shifted uncomfortably in their chairs. Trevor's speech was going on a little bit too long this time. The four titles are The Clockwise Man by Justin Richards, The Deviant Strain by Justin Richards, The Stealer of Dreams by Steve Lyons, and Winner Takes All by Jacqueline Rayner. And since books don't work very well in the audio medium, we will have four hosts from four of our favourite podcasts along to provide a reading for each book. Ian and Michelle have also recorded a review of another book from the Ninth Doctor range. Trevor's monologue ended in a flourish, and Tom was sure he saw his hand sweep up grandiosely like a conductor of an orchestra finishing a symphony. Leeson raised his left hand whilst wiping the residue of milk and cereal away with his right, and said hesitantly, Oh, uh, I've got to be gone by ten today, is that okay? 
Tom was staring at Leeson's raised hand in a comical way, wondering what would happen next. No worries, said Trevor, placing himself firmly in his favourite chair, adjusting his microphone into position with a nonchalant air. We better get started then. Well, listeners, welcome back from the land of fiction. Uh, Our first book we're going to be looking at today uh, is The Clockwise Man by Justin Richards. So, Lisa, I'm going to pass it over to you and get your opinions on The Clockwise Man. Well, The Clockwise Man is is the first in the the new range of Doctor Who fiction that came out when the show was revived, uh, written by Justin Richards. I was I, I quite like this one because it's set in a period which I'm uh, which which I really quite like. It's no, 1920s London. Uh, it had a very sort of dark Agatha Christie type feel to it, and Justin Richards is well known for his um, his understanding of the periods that he's writing about. I know he's written a lot about the Victorian era, and he, he throws in all sorts of tidbits for for people that that know about the era, uh, and it's. It's not a very science fiction-y story. Uh, it takes a long while to open up. Uh, it's, mm. um, there's no obvious science fiction uh, bent to start with in the story, which I suppose uh, is in a similar vein to The Unquiet Dead, which I believe it's set straight after, isn't it? Yeah, it's funny you mention The Unquiet Dead because I really got a feeling of The Unquiet Dead when I read Clockwise Man. Um, even though it is a 1920s story, it did feel like a a sort of a gaslight-lit London type of feel with, with dark alleys and cobblestone streets and all that sort of thing. It, it, it really evoked that sort of general period, I suppose, for me. How well do you think the characters of the Doctor and Rose were realised by Mr Richards in this? I think Rose was fantastic. because Something they tried to do with Rose when she was with the Eccleston Doctor was they tried to make Rose a friend to everyone or, or even stretch it a bit further, a, a friend to the common man. Now, there's two fantastic relationships in this story that I, that I really enjoyed and they really seemed to um, give Rose a chance to shine. Um, her initial friendship with the maid in this big rambling house that they come across and then also um, Rose's relationship with the young character of Freddie later in the novel, um, really seemed to evoke that sort of ability that Rose has to get along with everyone and, you know, sort of make very, very quick friends. Yeah, there was almost, there was one of those characters in, in almost all of the, the first series. Um, there was the um, the maintenance worker uh, on on the platform as they were viewing the end of the world. Uh, mm. And uh, there's Gwyneth uh, in The Unquiet Dead. She just seemed to be- befriend the underdog. Um, but as for the Ninth Doctor's persona, I, it was so nice to have a bit more new uh, Eccleston Doctor. Uh, and I do think it hit, it hit the ground running. It was because I, I, I hankered after more Ninth Doctor. I, I think he, he should have done, uh, he should have had a, well, it would have been nice if uh, we could have had uh, a more of a de- development of his character and, and a few more series with Eccleston in the role. And I wasn't expecting this book range to be quite as engaging as it was. This is actually the first one that uh, I've dipped into because I'd felt. Incorrectly, as it turns out, they were more aimed at uh, at a children's market. Uh, And I had dipped into the uh, Dan Abnett and uh, Michael Moorcock books, which were pitched as being more adult. Um, And when it came to read this for for this this review episode, I was expecting these to be quite childlike. But there's very little difference in the tone uh, of these books, uh, this one especially, to to the ones that are supposedly aimed at adults. So I, I really enjoyed them. Well, let's try and get a feeling for the tone here. Our very own Michelle from the DWP has done a bit of a reading for us from the Clockwise Man, so let's have a listen to that. The window the doctor had seen was at his head height now, higher than Freddy. 
The boy watched while the doctor and Repel examined it, and he heard their disappointed sighs. What's wrong? There's a metal mesh over the window, Repel replied. I can probably pull that away, doctor. Even so, the doctor said. Even so, what? Too small, too narrow. We'd never get through there. The cat, Repel suggested, if it can be repaired. That'd take time we don't have. As he spoke, the doctor glanced down. Melissa and the mechanicals were standing below, looking up at them, blank and expressionless. Freddy looked back up and found that the doctor was staring at him. He lined up his hands with the sides of the window, then lowered them, holding them apart and lining them up with Freddy. It took Freddy a moment to work out what he was doing. Then he went cold with the realization. Just about, the doctor said quietly. How about it, Freddy? Freddy swallowed, his throat dry. I'm not sure. Reppel was already reaching through the window and tearing away the mesh. It made a sound like a saw cutting into hard wood as it pulled free. He hauled out the ragged mesh and dropped it to the leaded roof at their feet. Even from where he was standing, looking up, Freddy could see the jagged edges of metal where the mesh had been torn out, sharp spikes jutting from the window edges. I won't fit, he protested. I could get scratched. Cut. Give it a go, the doctor said quietly. Freddy, I wouldn't ask if there was any other way. He crouched down, face level with Freddy's. You were a hero for us before, remember? Your chance to be a hero again. Not just for us, Repple said. For Rose. For everyone, the doctor agreed. All of London. Your parents. Everyone. Like father, Freddy murmured, remembering the look on his father's face. The mixture of satisfaction and fear and courage. He wondered if his own face looked the same. We can't make you, Freddy the doctor was saying. We can only ask. It's your choice. Freddy sucked in a deep breath, slowly and carefully, afraid it might become a sob. I don't want to get hurt, he said, but I'll do it. The doctor grinned and slapped his shoulder. Good lad, I'll give you a bunk up. He lifted Freddy easily to the window ledge. Once inside, see if you can open the door. If not, then go and help Rose. Try to slow down Wise. What will you do if I can't get you in? Don't worry, I have a plan, but it will take time. It was a tight squeeze. Freddy reached his arms in ahead of him, scrunched himself up as tight and small as he could. He could feel the stone sill hard and cold under him. He could feel the ragged remains of the mesh cover tearing at his clothes and hoped and prayed he would not get stuck half in and half out. The doctor held on to his feet to save him from falling through the window onto the hard stone stairs inside. It was a drop of perhaps four feet. If he wasn't careful, he would roll and tumble down to the bottom of the tower. Finally, the doctor was forced to let go. Freddy's hands were stretched out, but still a foot away from the step below. He fell forwards, his hands smacking into the stone, but he managed to hold on to save himself from plunging onwards. He felt the remains of the mesh whip at his lower leg as it pulled through the window. His feet slithered down the wall behind. Freddy sat on the stairs, getting his breath back, scarcely able to believe that he was inside the tower, safe and alive. He rubbed his palms together, inspected them to make sure he hadn't broken the skin, hadn't bruised. All right, the doctor hissed through the window above him. Yes, I think so, he whispered back. Then he started down the stairs, carefully at first. 
but then faster and faster as he felt more confident and excited. He was a hero. He was saving Rose and his parents and everyone. But yeah, I agree with you. I, I was surprised, certainly with Clockwise Man, just how, in inverted commas, adult it was. Um, it doesn't shy away from looking at the more, I, I suppose, grown-up concepts in the story. I mean, it, it, it treats death in a very adult way rather than, a, I suppose, an almost childish way, which uh, the RTD era often or sometimes did with death. Um, it, it treats its reader with a little bit of intelligence, I think. Yeah, there, there are uh, obvious political themes as well. He's talking about sort of, uh, the, um, the Russian Revolution. Uh, on the one hand, there's a, there's a thread uh, of that running throughout the story. And some of the violence, as you say, is, 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 is quite gruesome. There's a, it's not spoiling anything to say that there's a clockwork man, um, an ostensibly clockwork man, going around murdering people. And this is the setting for that the, the Ninth Doctor and Rose arrive in. It, it sort of sets that Agatha Christie murder mystery tone. Could you, could you imagine this being made for TV? I can, easily. I mean, especially when you think of the whole conceit of the clockwise man, you know, I mean, I'm sure our listeners are thinking of the clockwork men from the um, from the tenant era. Um, to to me, I, I had that vision of what they were like in my head that they were clockwork people, and I, I think this would have perfectly fit into the Eccleston era. And it it, it does this wonderful thing of um, you you have the title of the uh, of the book, and you start reading the book, and you almost have an idea of oh, where this is going to go, but it it doesn't go that way. Uh, and mm, and the book definitely. the plot blossoms out and. By about three chapters in, there's there's two or three hooks in your mind, and you're going, "Oh, this is marvelous! So where where is this going? This this isn't uh, unfolding the way I expected it to." And Justin Richards mm. is, is particularly good at that, which is why he he's come back several times for the book range, and uh, and he's written some for the new Tom Baker Big Finish audios. Well, that's the Clockwise Man by Justin Richards. Um, certainly a big thumbs up from me and a big thumbs up from Leeson. Absolutely. Um, let's let's move on to the next one. Well, the next one on our reading list was uh, Winner Takes All by Jacqueline Rayner. Now, um, Jacqueline is already quite a prolific contributor to the uh, Doctor Who universe. She's written some Bernice Summerfield uh, novels. She's uh, written some other ones as well. Um, This particular one, of course, is for the Ninth Doctor range. I suppose for me, the story I was thinking of when I read this book was I had a very Aliens of London World War III type of feel because it's set on Rose's housing estate with her mum and it's very much a story set in modern day London and and that really seemed to evoke for me that I don't know, earth and the modern day type of peril. Yeah, I, I would agree with that because it starts very similar. Uh, Rose wants to go home, just to pop home, just to say hello. Uh, and then we're back on the Powell estate. Uh, and something that did strike me about this um, was how Jacqueline got the... She got the banter between Rose and her mum and uh, that dynamic to, between uh, Rose, the mum, and, uh, and the Ninth Doctor. Uh, and that was all marvellous. That was very evocative of, of uh, RTD's realisation of that sort of family unit. Uh, and even Mickey. We, we, we get the return of Mickey in the, in the book range here. And that all seemed to work really well. She'd really got under the skin of, that, of the power estate dynamic. But as for the actual story itself... I totally agree with you. I, I think she got the characterizations bang on to her credit, but it's a aspect of Doctor Who and certainly about what they did with Rose. It, it was something about the Rose character at that time that I didn't enjoy. I, I didn't enjoy when the series constantly returned to the housing estate and 
did all that sort of stuff. I didn't like Rose's mum for the great part. And then, but then to have a whole book devoted to it around that period, that's probably why I didn't like it because it evoked the series so well. Mm. So for me, I, I didn't enjoy the fact because it seems to be a direct ripoff of The Last Starfighter um, because the basic premise of the story is the aliens use a computer program to find great warriors on Earth to fight their battles. And while the Doctor Who's version of this goes in a different direction, um, it, it just seems to be a basic ripoff of The Last Starfighter for me. It's, inter- it's interesting. This idea of people going on holiday and not coming back seems a bit... Um, like the like the faceless ones in you know, a lovely Patrick Troughton story, um, but this mm. was written in yeah. But, but this the thing the interesting thing is this maybe it's this is, maybe this goes back to something we were discussing a couple of weeks ago. There are only seventy plots. I mean, this was released in what two thousand and five, um, and thinking there there are a couple of elements about uh, that uh, are, are unreasonable coming from that seem to come from future stories. The as you, as you say, Trev, the idea of a game. Um, the idea of, a, of a, a company fronted by aliens and, and abductions is I'm not, I'm not sure how on the face of it I'm not sure how totally original that is no it's not really um, one thing I didn't like about the series at this time was its constant uh, pop culture references and this book is filled with them um, and, and that kind of annoyed me I mean for me pop culture stuff dates a story instantly mm. um, it's, it's not something you can pick up in 20 years and really get the same sort of gist unless it's a really really iconic reference and many of the things you read in this book will be relevant now but in 20 years people won't have a clue yeah i think you're right that it was strange when i read this uh, i was struck by how dated it felt even though it's it's not too it's, it's not too long since it was released it's, mm. it's sort of predicated upon this idea of, of the fear of console uh, video games and consoles which you know even in the few years that have passed since it was written already seems like a bit of an outdated worry you know it's it's like um the old fear of the television, the evil eye, you know, um, we, we don't seem to be too worried about that anymore. So it, it already seemed quite dated. Since we have a female writer for this book, it, it's only fitting that we get a female podcaster to do a bit of a reading for us. And Laura from the Oodcast has given us a reading from uh, Winner Takes All. The doctor had dragged a second chair up close to the TV and Rose was perched on its arm. There was a pile of games on the floor. Gran Turismo, Resident Evil, Bad Wolf, Time Splitters 2, loads of football stuff. She'd picked up the top one and was examining it. An orange cardboard box that had a picture of a cartoon porcupine shooting a cartoon insect thing on it. Big black letters gave the game's name. Death to Manto Deans. The two men were discussing the game itself passing the control pad between chairs across rows. She might have been a cushion for all the notice they were taking of her. Smart graphics, said the doctor. Yeah, first person's cool, innit, said Mickey. All Blair Witchy, like you really feel you're there, yeah? And it's never the same twice. The amount of variables they must have programmed it is amazing. And it's got these porcupines in it, has it? said Rose, tried to take part in the conversation. It wasn't as if she couldn't have been really good at this stuff herself if she'd wanted to be, but she just couldn't see the point. The ones from the promotion? Yeah, right at the beginning, Mickey said. They're at war with these other things called mantodines, like giant praying mantises sort of thing, and they send you off on a mission to infiltrate the enemy's stronghold. That's what it's all about. Spec they'll pop up again at the end if you win. No one's done it yet, though. How do you know? Rose asked. Because I have my finger on the pulse, babe, 
She kept looking inquiringly at him until he continued. They're offering a prize. First person to complete the game gets a load of cash. So everyone round here wants to give it a go. Nag at their mums till they win a game off the shopping. Set up a message board on the net and that, talking about it. Hardly anyone's even got past the training level. Training level? said the doctor. Yeah, that's what they call it. It's all cartoony, not like this stuff. He indicated the screen, which currently showed a realistic-looking view of a tunnel entrance. All tests and that. If it wasn't for the prize, I reckon a lot of people would have given up. But once you've done it, you get this intro about the proper game, the mission, and you get to play the good stuff. And not many people have got that far, then? asked Rose, pretending interest just for something to say. Nah, hardly any, I reckon. So just call me Deman and get ready to worship at my feet, because that prize is going to be mine. The doctor pointed at an indicator in the corner of the screen. The score wasn't very high. Yeah, looks like you're on the home stretch, Deman. Yeah, like, but like we've said, I, the characterizations are bang on. The, the story is very evocative of many of the stories which did return to Earth in the modern day around this time and even during the Tenant era. Um, but for me, that's it's failing because at really the, the the story itself is a bit of a run round at the end of the day. It's nothing particularly memorable. Um, none of the characters really get a chance to you know shine. I suppose it's 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 a very very standard story for me. I think if if I'm glad I didn't read this one first and went with the Clockwise Man first because my my previous worries uh, or concerns that they were it was pitched perhaps at a young teenage market would have been confirmed by this one. I, I think it felt more like a teen fiction book. All right, we'll move on to the next one in the list. Deviant Strain. As Leeson so beautifully put it, Deviant Strain by Justin Richards is next. Um, This one is a little bit of an interesting one because for me, I didn't really get a feeling for any televised stories when I uh, read it. To me, it seemed to evoke more um, Seventh Doctor New Adventure novels. It was visiting this old, almost derelict Russian uh, sub-base where these nefarious goings-on with these weird aliens were uh, happening. And, and for me, it seemed to evoke a more, more of a Seventh Doctor story. I, I, and the way Justin uh, used the, the characters of Rose, and also in this case Captain Jack was along for the ride, um, they, they really seemed to be doing stuff that Ace would have done during the series and during the book range, where they were sent off to investigate stuff, um, you know, putting themselves at incredible peril. I, I, like, I like the remote uh, setting for this. I, li- I like the, uh, you know, the icy wastes, the, the deserted Russian um, or Soviet naval base or whatever it was. I had high hopes coming into this one with another Justin Richards uh, novel, but I, this didn't quite hit all the, uh, all the same notes. As, as Clockwise Man for me, it seemed to mm. seemed to start uh, on, a, on a fairly good note, and it, it did lose me a little uh, in the middle. But we have all the all the same Justin Richards tropes in this one. There's lots of nods to um, to real events, um, you know, real things in the physical world that are tied in. So in good Doctor Who tradition, you, you're picking up bits of knowledge that you perhaps don't realise you're picking up, um, which would be good for pub quizzes in later life. <laughs> well, yes. I, I, I found, too, I think there were too many characters in this story. Um, we, we have an initial squad of uh, Russian what, commandos or army men mm. which were coming into the base to find out what was going on. Then you had the townspeople there which, which um, worked on the base itself. There was a huge amount of characters in this story. And um, I 
kind of lost track after a while. I mean, I, I could be described as a casual reader of these books. And if it's too difficult for me to keep track of, I think there's probably even 15 characters at one point. Um, that That's where I really start to lose interest and characters start blurring into each other. And, and it really takes a jolt in the book itself for the writer to um, split them out manually for me at certain points so I can follow the flow of the story. It's strange because I thought this this book was going to go uh, down the base under siege, uh, small, tight-knit group of group of characters route. But then, as you say, it doesn't. It blossoms out and there's, there are lots of people to follow and lots of, lots of mm. strands to try and keep, keep organised in your head. Uh, that, um, did we enjoy the return of Captain Jack to, to well, the, the appearance of Captain Jack? I'm not really sure. One of the books we will talk about soon, um, Stealer of Dreams, I think, had a much better characterisation of Captain Jack. Um, in this one... I think he was a little bit wasted. I think he was lost in the sea of um, scientific and military personnel that um, littered this whole book. Um, Jack ended up just being another military person rather than someone who uh, really stood out. Um, he, he didn't really. He seemed to be sidelined for quite a lot of the book too. Uh, Rose spent some time down in the village um, doing some investigating while the doctor was um, working with the scientists on various things. Um, but Jack just seemed to wander around the forest a lot and find things, and he, he didn't really seem to get much to do. No, it's, it seems strange, because given... I mean, it's fairly obvious that... Uh, or an obvious thing to do to bring Jack into this story because of the military aspect, so you expect him gun-toting Jack and doing... But, yeah, like you say, he's sidelined for a lot of the book. Well, I think it's time for our reading from our, our dear friend Chip at the uh, Two Minute Time Lord. He's done a reading for us of The Deviant Strain. Sophia Berenska agreed to drop the doctor off at the stone circle. I just want to have a look, he said. And Rose wants to see the village, don't you, Rose? Do I? Of course you do. So they sat in the back of the large car as Sophia drove the short, bumpy way back to the stones on the cliff top. Why do I want to see the village? Rose asked. Have a look around, ask a few questions, I don't know, see what you can find out? What about? You need to find that out, too. Dead people? I don't think this is the first time it's happened. I don't think it's a coincidence it's happened now, all right? All right. She wasn't convinced. Anyway, it'll be fun. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Rose Tyler, Special Investigator. What sort of title is that? She said with a laugh. Then another thought occurred to her. Hey, why don't they think I've got a strange name? I mean... It's not very Russian, is it? It's like you hearing what they say, but not how they say it. What the TARDIS does for you, the doctor explained, keeping his voice low. They were almost at the stones now, and Berinska was swinging the car in a wide arc, slowing down. You hear English from them, they hear Russian from you, including your name. It just sort of fits. You mean I'm like... Rosetska Tylerov or something? Don't look at me. I'm probably Doktorsky. She thought about this and laughed again. But the doctor was already climbing out of the car. See you then. Where? He shrugged. Around. He closed the door. Hey, wait! She was talking to Sophia. I'll join you. Rose climbed through into the front of the car and sat down in the passenger seat. Thanks for the ride. Sophia barely glanced at her, but for the first time, there was the trace of a friendly smile on her face. 
since we're on the subject of uh, Captain Jack and uh, John Barrowman specifically, Lisa, and I, I believe you've had a bit of a gander at um, something Mr Barrowman's written with his own two hands. Let's have a listen to what I thought in the past. We need to talk about John Barrowman. Singer, dancer, West End musical star, TV star and movie star. And now author of his own fiction novel, Hollow Earth. Now, John has taken the leap into the world of writing with his sister, Carol E. Barrowman, and have written a book called Hollow Earth. In the book, twins Matt and Emily Calder have imaginations so powerful they can make art come to life. They're called animaires. All sorts of nefarious characters want to get their hands on these twins and their special power. Now, I didn't hold out much hope that this book was going to be too much of a, of a classic fantasy novel, but I was surprised at the quality of the writing and the quality of the prose. And as such, the book reads incredibly well. Uh, it's relatively free of, of clunky dialogue and clunky ham-fisted prose. It's, uh, it, it, was, it was impressive, and I suspect um, that Carol E. Barrowman had a lot to do with this, but obviously they both have quite an imagination. It seems to be setting itself up for a series of books and comparisons to Harry Potter are are, are lazy but nevertheless I'm going to make them because it's evident that this book while not aping uh, Harry Potter style is is aimed at that market it's aimed to fill that gap that I think has been plugged by sort the Twilight Saga that sort of uh, that sort of teen fantasy fiction Uh, and there's definitely a market for it which brings me on to that this book I this book's not written for me, uh, although it's a perfectly reasonable fantasy novel, uh, and when the demographic that it's obviously aimed at is considered, I, you know, I think I think it's going to be enjoyed. There is plenty of scope for it to carry on. Uh, there's plenty of scope for it to be an expanding universe. Uh, it's it's an interesting, fun book, which provides in places quite a nice insight into the history of art and the history of paintings. Uh, given that the, uh, the central trope is uh, kids that can bring paintings to life. Uh, so there's a lot in there for people to enjoy, for people to digest. After about 20 minutes in Sandy's studio, Em lost hope. A dark shadow seemed to cover her mind. She sensed Matt's thoughts as clearly as her own, spiralling into despair beside her. They'd never find their mum this way. She was gone, maybe forever. A spider the size of a cat suddenly pounced out of the painting of the woman with the funky hat, leaping over two pots of paint and scampering down the table leg. The hairy, black spider scuttled across the floor towards the twins. Em screamed. Grabbing a stool from under the table, Matt flipped it over and slammed it on top of the creature. The spider exploded in a burst of black charcoal dust. Em screamed again as a swarm of spiders spewed from the woman's hat as if it were an egg sack. With bulbous middles and bulging eyes, they streamed across the table, washing onto the floor in thick waves. Next, a thick ropey vine from one of the exotic plant pictures untangled itself from its roots, slithered across the floor and wrapped itself around Em's ankles. It tightened its grip, pulling Em to her knees. Three bigger spiders leapt from the table edge, landing on Matt's shoulder. They dug their legs into his neck, their hair scratching his skin like wire brushes. Matt batted them off with his hands, filling the room with more clouds of black charcoal dust. Zack ran to help Em as still more spiders cascaded from the painting. By this time, Em had curled herself into a ball, covering her head with her arms, howling as one spider after another landed on her, tangling their legs in her thick hair and nipping at her skin. Now at the Doctor Who podcast, we like to look after our listeners, and... If your interest has been piqued by this, let's call it a review, of Hollow Earth, and you'd like to have your own copy, then here's your chance to win one. The very copy I used to formulate this review. Resplendent in its coffee stains, suspicious-looking food stains, and folded-down page corners. All you have to do is answer this simple question. The immortal Captain Jack Harkness was later revealed to be A. 
the face of Joe, B, the face of Bo, or C, the facelift of Bo? Those questions again. The immortal Captain Jack Harkness was later revealed to be A, the face of Joe, B, the face of Bo, or C, the facelift of Bo? Answers, please, on an email to feedback at the com. Well, the next book in our DWP reading list uh, won't be one that uh, Tom, Leeson and myself will be reviewing. It's actually Ian and Michelle have reviewed one called Only Human. So over to Ian and Michelle. Well, thanks, guys. So this week it falls to Ian and I to look at Only Human, which is another ninth Doctor novel, this one featuring both Rose and Captain Jack, and authored by Gareth Roberts. This novel has the Doctor and his companions investigating why a Neanderthal man has suddenly shown up in modern-day London. Well, to continue my catchphrase on the Doctor Who podcast, this is not only my first time with a new Who novel but actually my first time with any Doctor Who book that doesn't have a Target logo on the spine. We are in New Who's version of the crowded TARDIS, after Jack has joined the crew in the Doctor dances, but before Boomtown where they're an established team. In fact, this gives the impression of following directly on from the Doctor dances. I thought the book started with a rather awkward introduction, with two separate prologues before we get to the familiar characters in Chapter 1. The second of these was also a bit out of place to my mind, featuring drunken revellers in a nightclub fighting on a Friday night, which I found to be rather a jarring theme for a Doctor Who story. But I was glad I pushed through it. Once you hit chapter one, it finds its stride and was a lot more engaging. Both times I read the book, I had completely forgotten about the very first prologue, which has a seven-year-old girl doing some genetic and surgical manipulation on a cat to uh, fix some of the things she thinks are wrongs with cats. And both times I completely forgot it as I read the rest of the, the novel. But this time, a couple days after reading it, I remembered that and realized just how well it sets up the character of Chantal that you find later in the novel. So after a couple goes at it with 2020 hindsight, I actually like the prologue. My Weekend by Chantal, aged seven. Second of October, AD 438533. On Saturday, our cat Dusty was giving the whole family too many wrong feelings. She weed on the upholstery again. It's nice to have pets to stroke and we do love Dusty. But she has been too naughty recently. She gets in the way. Later, a man over the road tripped over her and broke his leg. That was very inconvenient and the man needed a health patch. That was when I took a long look at Dusty and decided she was very inefficient. Animals run about for no reason and they must feel all sorts of odd sensations just like people used to. I thought it would be a good idea to improve Dusty so she would be happier and would understand not to be naughty. So I went to my room and got out my pen and paper. I had lots of ideas about improvements and I wrote them all down. Then I called Dusty into my room and set to work using mother's cutters and things from her work kit. First I took off her tail which I consider to be a bit pointless in its present form. So I stretched it and made it scaly. Then I opened Dusty up and moved her organs about to make them more logical. Then I took her head off, pulled her brain out, and studied it. It was very primitive. Not really what you'd call a brain at all. 
I got out one of Mother's jean sprays and dialed it to make Dusty more ferocious at catching mice and better at breeding. I made it so she would never wee again. Then I put all her bits back together and took her downstairs to show my parents. Unfortunately, the improved Dusty gave my parents wrong feelings. They tried to catch her, but she sped out of the door, and I don't think she'll ever come back. All the mice are dead now. There was no need for mice, and eventually all cats will be like Dusty because of my cleverness. I like improving things, so that was my weekend. I thought the characters were quite nicely realised with good believable dialogue. The Ninth Doctor in particular is captured well, with lines you could clearly imagine the Eccleston Doctor saying. The early plot rattles on at a nice pace and works well. You get a sense of the TARDIS team that Mickey found so nauseating in Boomtown is coming together in this story, which places it very nicely in the continuity. You know, it's interesting. It jumps around in time. There are characters from the far future, and of course Rose and the Doctor find themselves experiencing most of the novel in the far past. At the time when the Neanderthal people were facing extinction, uh, probably partly because of uh, Homo sapiens coming into the forefront. So the juxtaposition of these people from the far future and some of the, the directions that they've taken technologically uh, and in terms of the way they approach science with the more primitive peoples of the distant past is, is interesting. I thought there were some great sci-fi concepts here, both in the main and in the subplots. And in the classic SF tradition of the likes of Asimov, they're explored both in and of themselves and also looking at the logical implications of those concepts. Some of it doesn't stack up if you analyse it too closely, for example, the micro-sized code-entry-controlled drug dispenser that doesn't use a computer strains credibility. But it doesn't really matter, as the point is to explore the concepts, which it does very well. I would agree. For example, one of the fascinating issues that's looked at is this idea of this alternative science that doesn't rely on computers for technology, but more on an in-depth knowledge of pharmacology and physiology and, and how that works. So on the one hand, you have an interesting development where humans have managed to eradicate all wrong feelings, as they call it, because they have this series of medicines or drugs that they can inject to whenever they are, are worried or concerned or anxious or, or fearful. But on the other hand, that means that you have a whole society of people that can't ever be alarmed by anything or worried about anything. And so it strains my credibility because I don't think they would survive very long. It's asking to be conquered or to be made extinct by the first aggressive race that comes along. So interesting concepts, but like you say, you can't analyze them too deeply. I did have one complaint, though, which is that it was a little bit adult. In particular, in the second half of the book, there are some quite horrifying scenes. One stood out in particular when a character is stuck in a cave with a creature and comes to a particularly grisly end, which is described in quite a gratuitous and affecting way. As an adult, I found it a bit disturbing, and I could easily see kids or even younger teenagers having nightmares as a result. I do get a feel with these novels from the new series that they tend to be aimed at a, a slightly younger audience. Sometimes as I read these novels, I find they don't have the depth that I tend to look for when I'm when I'm reading them. So interesting, you're right. There are some very graphic scenes in here in, in terms of the genetic monsters that have been created by this character and what they do to the people. But I wasn't, I guess I just didn't find myself bothered as deeply as you did by those scenes. Some of the scenes were things that I don't think you would see on the TV show. And I found it a little bit odd for the book to be aiming for a more mature audience than the TV show would have done. 
Bringing it back to one of the the lighter qualities of the novel that I think worked quite well. In the context of the plot, Rose and the Doctor end up going back in time in the TARDIS, while Captain Jack is left in modern-day London with a Neanderthal who is trapped in present day. And so there's a whole sequence of journal entries that come in periodically through the book, which are done first from the point of view of Das, the Neanderthal, and then from the point of view of Jack, talking about how his education is going in terms of learning to live in the 21st century. And I thought that was very clever and, and shows some of uh, Gareth Roberts' skill at humor. It was very entertaining and provided comedy relief to the more serious themes of the main plot. I tend to find that these novels from the new series are geared towards a younger audience, and uh, I read a lot of them early on and haven't read so many later on. But returning to this one reminds me that, uh, you know, it may be one of the better ones uh, of the series. And if you want to experiment with one, this isn't a bad one to pick up and try out. No, I definitely enjoyed it. Uh, the Doctrine Rose of a Cracking Good Adventure in Prehistoric Times. Things run along at a nice pace. There's some lovely ideas on display. And overall, it's very enjoyable. I would definitely be keen to investigate more of the New Who novels and Gareth Roberts' work in particular because this was very impressive. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much for that. And thank you to young Kenneth for reading from Only Human for us. Much appreciated. The last book on our reading list for this episode from the Ninth Doctor range is The Stealer of Dreams by Steve Lyons. Now, we'll have a bit of a reading first from Eric from the uh, Doctor Who Book Club podcast. Take it away, Eric. The doctor scooped up the detonator, glanced at it, and said cheerfully, <laughs> TV remote control! He flung it over his shoulder and dropped to his haunches beside them. Thought so, but I couldn't be sure. I had the sonic screwdriver ready to block the radio signal. He gave Arno Finch an almost congratulatory slap on the shoulder. But you were just having us on, weren't you? His presence was like an anchor, pulling Waller back to sanity. The nightmare fell away, and she let out a breath of relief as she knew at last that the worst hadn't happened. She was alive. They were all alive. The building was intact, and the geek was beneath her, the struggle knocked out of him. But what did the doctor just say? There were no bombs! Why hadn't she realized? She had been so quick to accept that fiction, to believe in something she couldn't see for herself. She had forgotten the first rule. Angry with herself, she rolled the geek over and spray-cuffed his wrists behind his back. It's the big white house for you, pal, she snarled. And I hope they fry your brain for what you've done to these people, you pervert. She regretted her harsh words almost immediately, regretting even more the fleeting truth in them. She did understand beneath her frustration. She had sought out the static channel herself once on a cold, lonely night. She had just wanted to see. She had been lucky. She hadn't found it. The difference between her and the Arno Finches of this world, the fantasy crazy, was more slender than she cared to admit. You'll tell them, won't you? The geek stammered tears in his eyes. You'll tell them it wasn't my fault. I was just... Just doing what they said on the TV. The doctor leaned over him and muttered something in his ear. Waller didn't catch the words, but they seemed to calm the geek down a little. The bankers were picking themselves up, adjusting to their new reality, those who could. Too many were still on the ground, curled into fetal balls, sobbing. You see what I mean now? Waller said to the doctor. Yeah, I do. This is what Gryden does. This is why he's so dangerous. This TV station of his, it's making people greedy, teaching them to disrespect authority. Yeah, it is. He's driving them crazy! I've misjudged you, Inspector Waller. I thought you were the monster here. He bounced to his feet while Waller was still gaping. There are no monsters, Doctor, she spluttered. Yeah, there are, he said. Some of them are just better at hiding than others. And then there are the ones we wouldn't know if we saw them. Come on, we're going! He set off at a jog as if he expected Waller to follow. And somehow, maddeningly, she found herself doing just that. Where to? She cried after him helplessly. Big White House, he called back over his shoulder. 
I want to see what happens next. Stealer of Dreams. I really enjoyed this one. Um, it's a different sort of story. It's a it's a sort of a 1984 type story, um, population under the thumb type of thing. Very happiness patrol in its field because it has a population that's been told basically you may not have imagination anymore. Don't be creative. Don't write books. Don't uh, paint paintings. Don't draw drawings. Don't make up stories. Um, be, because they feel that such um, activity is dangerous on this particular planet for a particular reason. Um, so, yeah, I, I really got a feeling of happiness patrol in this one. It, it also evoked the Macra Terror, which was a very similar civilization. It's a good book confidently told with some really, really big ideas in there. Now, we have the TARDIS crew of the Ninth Doctor Rose and, again, Captain Jack. Now, I think in this particular one, um, Captain Jack really gets a chance to... Um, I, I, I suppose, have his character fleshed out a lot more. He, he does take the forefront in this story a lot more, um, which, which is really pleasing to see because I really think that Steve Lyons got his characterisation bang on for this. It was actually a pleasure to read the Captain Jack character, but because the whole premise of the story where you know you, you, you can't dream, you can't be excited, you can't be creative, this is a perfect situation for Captain Jack to get in there and sort of inject his own colourful personality in, into proceedings. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. Trevor, I've got to ask, what, what do you make of the Captain Jack character in, in the Doctor Who universe? Are you, a, are you a fan of that particular character? Do you think he works well? Um, I think in some cases he can work very well. There, there, there are certain stories where I um, resent his intrusion. I, I was never particularly happy with him being in U Utopia, for example. I think stories like this, which actually have a decent reason for him to be there, he's there to, um, uh, you know, sort of rabble-rouse the population to, to get them sparked up and moving again. And, and there's a fantastic set piece about three-quarters of the way through the story at this mental asylum where uh, Captain Jack takes centre stage pretty much. A absolutely fantastic. Well, of course, he is, he is brought in to be, to be the gung-ho action hero that the, that the Doctor perhaps can't be. Um, but I feel that he's, he's kind of redundant now. I know, I know um, uh, John Barrowman has been talking a lot about wanting to come back to, uh, for the 50th, uh, I suspect, unless he's, uh, he's, he's pulling a swift one uh, over us, and he hasn't been asked already. He, he's probably not going to be part of it. But I think his character is kind of redundant now. We have Riversong, who um, is that character, is the, is, can, can wield a weapon, uh, can uh, do a karate chop uh, and be the action hero. But do we think Doctor Who needs an action hero? Against certain doctors, you do. Christopher Eccleston, maybe a little bit. David Tennant, no way in the world, because he's probably even more energetic than Captain Jack is. But um, Matt Smith, yeah, I, I think if River Song isn't there, then Captain Jack could be there. But, but like you say, I think they're very much the same character, just one's male and one's female. And, and I know that's been said before. So um, I'm, I'm not sure whether Captain Jack has any place in the Matt Smith universe now, I suppose, that River Song is so prominent in it. Um, but... He, he kind of works with Eccleston, I think, because Eccleston's still a little bit morose. The, you know, the Ninth Doctor pulls back a little bit. He, he's not the, the major action hero, say, like Tennant became. Well, that's because yeah, the, the introduction of Captain Jack was quite nice and there was this sparring between the Doctor who suddenly felt like uh, you know, he was being outdone by this slightly more glamorous and more ease with himself. And I think that was the, the start of the Ninth Doctor sort of realising that he was perhaps a bit too wrapped up in, in his grumpiness and, and the baggage that he was carrying from the Time War. Mm. In, 
well, he ends up dancing, doesn't he, to prove that he is light-hearted and can be uh, relaxed. It's interesting. Stealer of Dreams, I think, sort of style-wise, sort of straddles the, I suppose, almost childlike basic feel of Winner Takes All, but it's not as adult as Clockwise Man. Um, it, it's somewhere in between. It, it, it draws um, content and inspiration from both type of styles, I think. So it's, I suppose, a good book, which, which I think, it, if I was to pick one of the four... Stealers of Dreams would, would be the one that I would have thought all of this particular range would have been uh, pitched at in terms of age. All right, guys, there we go. That's our uh, little look at a couple of the novels from the Ninth Doctor range, the, the Christopher Eccleston Doctor range of original Doctor Who novels. Um was really interesting to have a read a couple of these because I, I think all of us haven't read them before and you know we did it specifically for this podcast and I think we were all pleasantly surprised by what we got in the end yeah it was it was nice to discover that they were they're, they're actually good novelizations or, or they're good novels in their own right uh, and it was nice to dis- to discover more of the ninth doctor so if, if you're hankering after a good doctor who read if you're hankering after a bit more of the ninth doctor some of these ones that we've, we've looked at and no doubt some of the others uh, are if you steered clear of them, they're perhaps of a better quality than, than you thought. So check them out. The obvious question which I have to ask you, um, both having, having, spent the t- having, having spent the time re- with, with these texts, is that the comparison with Doctor Who novels is always going to be made back to the Target novels. Now, I do appreciate that it wasn't just Terence Dixon and Ian Marta writing those, um, but you know, you've both got a history with those books. How do you feel that these con- uh, c- are compared? Do they, do they represent a continuum? Are they a worthy successor to the Target novels? I, I was surprised because, as I've said, uh, I, I'd steered clear of these because because I, I I thought that they were they were aimed at a, a lower age bracket. Uh, so I was I was actually surprised at the at the depth of some of these novels. I mean, they they were all good reads, I think. I mean, um, but some some were better than others. Uh, but no, worthy successes, I think. And and in many ways, they 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 they're, they're better novels than the, the target novelizations were. There's more there's more character progression and there's more depth to the stories. Whereas the mm. um, some of the, I mean, due to the length of the Target novels, they they sometimes felt uh, that they were over too quick. I mean, you can sit and read a Target novel in one sitting. These these are more books that you can get your teeth into. You can take on holiday and and devour by the pool. So I I, yeah. I, I was impressed. I, I was impressed, and I certainly will be reading more. Yeah, and and if you've read any that we haven't covered here in the show, then let us know at feedback at the doctorpodcast.com. Let us know what you think of the ones we reviewed and the ones we haven't. We'd we'd, we'd love to hear from you. And of course, don't forget to enter the competition. Leeson's competition for a copy of John Barrowman's book. Well, there we go, lads. Another episode finished. I think we've reached the last chapter. The villain's been revealed, and we're about to close the book for the night and go oh, to sleep. Of course, really important to say thank you very much to all our podcast friends for contributing the readings. Really, very, very kind indeed, of, very kind indeed. of you all. Thank you so very much, Eric, Laura, and Chip, and of course Michelle and uh, Young Kenneth. Thank you very much, guys. Much appreciated. So we will be back next week on the Doctor Who podcast with a a bountiful range of Doctor Who goodies for your listening pleasure. So until then, bye-bye. Cheerio. Yes. Marty took a deep breath and began. That was the Doctor Who podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. He informed. If you have any feedback, please. He pleaded. Send it in to feedback at the Doctor Who Podcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Marty wasn't going to mention where they could find him. He liked being anonymous. Thank you for listening. Take care. 
Marty turned off his microphone and started packing up. If he didn't hurry, he would miss his train.